Welcome to the We Need to Talk About Whiteness podcast. I'm your host, Miriam Francois, and to all of our listeners, thank you for joining us. This is a space where we explore the meaning of whiteness in the context of conversations around race and racism, and as the structure pertains to different areas of our lives. Why whiteness? Well, very simply, because as someone racialized as white myself, I want to explore the meaning and impact of whiteness at our current juncture. What does whiteness mean and does it matter? Every episode, I'm joined by a guest who offers unique insights into these questions and many more. Now, today I'm joined by British Egyptian writer Sabrina Mahfouz, whose debut non-fiction book, These Bodies of Water, Notes on the British Empire, the Middle East and Where We Meet, will be published in May 2022 by Tinder Press. She's the editor of several books, including The Things I Would Tell You, British Muslim Women Write, Smashing It, Working Class Artists on Life, Art and Making It Happen, and Poems from a Green and Blue Planet. She's a fellow of the Royal Society of Literature and her most recent theatre show was a co-written adaptation of Ovid's Metamorphoses at Shakespeare's Globe Theatre in September last year. She's currently writing on forthcoming TV shows for Netflix and Amazon Studios and has received multiple awards for her writing. Sabrina, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here. Appreciate your time. Oh, thank you. It's great to finally chat to you. It, yes. Um, I first came across you um, through a spoken word piece that you were doing. I wonder if you remember this one. Mm-hmm. It was like a feminist Little Red Riding Hood Oh, yeah. Do you remember that? Yeah, yeah, Red Raving Hood. (laughs) Yes, Red Raving Hood, that was it. (laughs) Um, And I just thought, wow, you're so immensely talented, like your lyricism, like it was an incredible performance. Um, Do you remember when and where that was? Yeah, that was, um, I don't know about the year actually, but probably um, at least like eight, nine years ago. And um, I was a creative in residence at the hospital club, which was a like members club in Covent Garden that's closed down now um during the pandemic it closed down but it yeah but it it was a place um obviously it was a a members club so it had it had quite a lot of money from the subscriptions and whatever but um I wasn't a member but I applied to be part of their creatives in residence program um where they would just sort of showcase your work and allow you to use all their amazing spaces um, for filming things and introduce you to like lots of mentors and important things like accountants which um, was like so useful even though I didn't need an accountant because I wasn't making any money but it was still just good to get that kind of looking um, like a full business overview of what it was you were trying to do because uh, I'd never been on another program where they did that anyway um, so I filmed that video for Red Raven Hood in there but it was actually now I'm talking about it, it was part of a documentary that um, somebody was doing for their film uh, Latitude they were doing a documentary for Latitude and that was part of the thing that they filmed for it oh my gosh yeah there's always so many layers to spoken word it's like because there's like no money in it or not in the UK really and, and not back then certainly um there was always so many layers to every project happening there was always like it had to be multiple partners multiple collaborators multiple favors being pulled in from each and every art form and angle for something to actually happen so when I start talking about it I'm like oh wow and there was that person and that person so anyway yeah the life of a creative huh um especially in the UK 
as you say. Um, before we go on, can I clarify the question on everyone's lips, which is, of course, are you related to the incredible <laughs> Egyptian writer Nagib Mahfouz? Um, no, not as far as I know. Um, my great granddad was a, um, what would you say? A co- not a colleague, but like um, when you say, oh my goodness. Contemporary. That's it. Um, of his, and then like used to hang around with his friends, not necessarily him. And he wrote biographies of, of other Egyptian writers at the time. Um, Amazing. But no, I, th- I think it it's not a common name, but it's not like... Com- completely uncommon either um, but I think it's usually between there was a period of time um, after 9-11 where it was like the number one most wanted uh, on the CIA list also was called somebody Mathuz oh and damn. so it was like between Nagib some people would be like are you related to him depending on <laughs> who you're talking to or are you related to the guy on the number one CIA list so you know high high circles it, it could go either way. I mean, one's clearly Egyptian royalty, virtually, pretty much. Like, if, I feel like it's like the one name a lot of people who don't know much about Arab literature will recognise. Um, and the other one is just like, yeah, post 9-11 legacies, huh? which we will yeah. touch on. Um, well, uh, you may not be related to him directly, but I did want to quote him because Nagib Mahfouz once said, home is where is not where you were born. Home is where all your attempts to escape cease. Where is home for you, Sabrina? And can you paint us a picture of the environment which shaped you? Oh, that's such a beautiful quote. Um, I think um, the only place that I actually there's no place that I never want to escape from so maybe I haven't if we if we take his quote literally then I probably haven't found that place yet but um, the place that I want to escape from the least is London or it was London anyway like pre pre pandemic it was London it was always the place where I was so happy to come back to even if I'd had the most amazing time somewhere else I was always um, pretty ecstatic when the plane or the train or the bus or whatever would be coming back into London I would be feeling like yes I'm home um but I don't know I guess like growing up and um living in lots of different places lots of different cities um from a really young age I was born in the UK but then went to Egypt when I was like 10 days old and sort of from that point on really it was kind of back and forth between Cairo, London and various other UK um, places and then also um, just like travelling to see various family members, my mum's side of the family from South America and the Caribbean so it was always kind of going to to those areas as well Um, and then her other side of the family was up north so it was always like travelling around the UK in that way. So I don't know, I never really feel like fully settled anywhere even though um, I have for most of my life lived in London. Um, it still always feels like there's somewhere else that I could be. Um, and Cairo is the other place where I feel like a genuine, like a physical longing or need to be in that location. Um, it's really only London and Cairo that I feel feel that with. Um, and you know when we weren't able to travel and stuff like that that feeling of like you you actually can't go somewhere just sort of showed um the privilege I suppose of of the rest of my life that most of the time if I'd really wanted to go somewhere I could go there 
Um, and like so many people have never been able to do that. So kind of having that imposed, that restriction imposed for the first time um, was obviously horrible, but but quite eye opening, um, especially so many people with mixed heritage and family elsewhere who, um, for reasons of visas or money, are just never able to actually go to those places. Um, I definitely had a, an, another level of uh, empathy and sympathy for that situation. And do you feel like London, um, I certainly feel like this, that you can, London is like a place that allows you to feel like you belong whilst feeling like you belong to so many other parts of the world. Like I've always struggled to say what my identity is. Like, how do you define your identity? Do people like if people, you know, if you're if you're introducing yourself, like how do you usually introduce yourself? Like I'm, I'm Sabrina from London or like how do you define your own identity? um yeah I don't I don't ever really nowadays I mean this is probably just going to be depressing now like reflecting on how most of life has has become about work which isn't depressing because I love my work but you know just um partly during pandemic and I guess partly age you just sort of uh work kind of takes up so much uh, extra time of life so when I introduce myself it's usually in a work context and I would usually say I'm Sabrina Mahfouz, I'm a writer. And that's kind of what has become like more of an identity um, than any other features. When I was much younger, I think um, if I was like going raving and stuff, then I would have probably been like, oh yeah, I'm from South London. And then, you know, then the conversation would have went from there, depending on who you're talking to, um, if you're going to start going into heritage or um, specific areas of a specific city and town and all of that stuff. So, yeah, I guess. As soon as you said South London, I I realised that for anyone from South London, that is the overarching identity that will trump any other. So (laughs) that that does make complete sense to me. what, what about um, how you have been? So obviously you're half Egyptian. You uh, mentioned that your mum's side is what from different parts of the UK, Latin America, the Caribbean. Um, how, do you ever feel, and I'm presumably day to day, you'd be racialized as white? Is that, would that be fair to say? Yeah. Do you feel anything at odds with how you actually feel about your identity and how you're racialized out externally? Um, I mean, obviously, it's it's a difficult one, isn't it? Because you get, um, in a way, you've just you've got all this amazing um, heritage, all this amazing like cultural um, background and ancestry, and um, it's it's like a part of my life. It's not like I'm disconnected to any of those places. It's I've been like fully involved in those places and they've been a huge part of of everything um that I've done throughout my life um but then at the same time somebody who doesn't know you is on first look without knowing names or any information about you is as you're saying racializing you as white and only as I've got older you realize like how that has probably um enabled all of the opportunity that I've been given um, and sort of not really being aware of that um, until like quite well into adulthood um, that sort of, I don't know, I just never, I'd never 
identified myself as white. I'd never like written down somewhere white. I'd never ticked a white box. You know, even when I was younger, I'd always tick other if it was there. Uh, I mean, mixed if it was there and other if it was not there. Um, and then during my 20s, like mixed was usually there. So that is what I would always tick, mixed other. Mm. Um, so, so I never identified myself as that because I grew up in a like very, very um, mixed up group of people, family and friends and school and everything wise. I'd n- I don't know, everyone, nobody had ever called me white. I'd, I'd never been in that sort of situation where... Um, I don't know, everyone knew that everyone was mixed and it just was not something that we as young people um, sort of carried around about in the same way that I think you have to now because it's so much more part of the mainstream conversation. So it was only like, you know, much later on that I started to realise, oh, wow, like people actually think that I'm white and that has obviously given me like a whole load of privilege in terms of the jobs that I've been able to get when um when not necessarily in the arts I don't know that's probably that's a bit more ambiguous but pre the arts the things that allowed me to work in the arts because I was able to make enough money to uh, sort of bankroll my own uh, body of work being able to be created um and like nightclubs and bars and all that kind of thing um looking back on those places I'm like oh yeah they they were not particularly um representational of London so you know you're like oh okay so passing as white definitely helped me get those jobs um so yeah it's just it's just a constant sort of rumination a constant awareness now like a constant sort of uh just thinking on on how it's affecting the way that I'm able to navigate through the world um, and how other people are not um, other people in my own family, other people in extended family um, and sort of, yeah, just trying to uh, use it to the best way that I can um, and to call people out on it as, as much as possible when I notice that it's happening. What about, um, it was interesting the way you phrased it, that you realised that people were perceiving you as white. What does white mean in that context? Um, well, I think, yeah, the first the, the first time was probably, I can't remember, I don't think anyone professionally has ever said anything like, oh, you're white. But it was much later on when I was like older and somebody had said like, oh, um something about like there's this group of white girls and I was part of that group and I was like oh and and actually like half of the group were not white um they were all mixed with different things but all light skinned and so it was like the realization that as as a group we had been called a group of white girls um and just like how um, I can't remember now what your question was. Well, it's uh, the meaning of white, because I think white has so white, many yeah. different meanings, right, in the way that we use it culturally, obviously. And I actually really want to push you to, like, especially that one, because I think we've all heard that, like, oh, that group of white girls. What does it mean when we say that group of white girls? What is What does white mean? Because, like, it's very, it has different significances in different contexts. And I think in that context, there's an identification of something. And I'm curious as to what you think is being pinpointed in that context um yeah I mean I think in that 
context specifically, it's just um, it's a binary in that like you if you don't have dark like if you're not clearly dark skinned or you're not showing like clear features of what would be racialized as a person of color, then you're immediately put into uh, a white group. Um, and obviously we can, you know, that's that's how whiteness has been, is kind of how it, how the supremacy of it, in my opinion, survives, you know, mm. so well, because it's, um, it's a way of making people who, probably don't have like white as in like northern european um majority heritage um or pure heritage is, is really what it what it probably should be um of like this political whiteness that's that's comes from this specific place and that is what's led to um it being this racialized thing there's so few people it's such a minority especially in London it is really like not that many people at all but because anybody who can pass for it is kind of pushed into identifying as it as it it kind of ups their numbers I, I guess um so I'm always sort of urging people to 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 not do that to just because somebody else says you're white if you have an Indian parent and you just have really really light skin and are racialized as white that doesn't mean that you have to actually self-identify as white it doesn't it doesn't mean that you have to erase the part of your life where you are not considered white in order to please people who are telling you that you are white you just have to obviously be aware that that whiteness is is how you are perceived and what that comes with and the privilege that that comes with in in particular well in all areas but particular areas more than others and um yeah so so what does it mean I mean it's it's just a a system of racial classification isn't it that's made up I mean it doesn't mean anything in a in a real sense it is it's just a totally made up word what about um I've heard a lot of my Arab American friends in particular talk about the erasure of like Arab identity under the white bracket because obviously in America people didn't have any like there was no Middle Eastern box right it was you know I think black white maybe Hispanic but um yeah. and so if you were Arab you had to tick that box so it sounds like you know that's that's one area where sort of Arab identities kind of get subsumed under the white bracket and sort of not recognized outside of it. I wanted to ask you about this quote in your book. You say, um, I was only ever bullied for my Arabness or harassed and assaulted for being a girl. Yet the main thing I felt shame about was money, the lack of it and what needed to be done to get it. Tell me about that. Um well, just that I think for me, and that's probably to do a lot to do with what we were just talking about, um, yeah, because of the sort of the privilege of passing, um, I was the main thing that I was always feeling um very conscious about was a more of a class thing. Um, and I don't know, just it's just 
that, that's what I mean was what I said in the, in the book is just that that was the thing that I um carried sort of shame more shame about than I mean post 9-11 there was definitely a sort of shame that came from a what I was old enough by then to be able to like intellectualize it rationalize it and so sort of push any kind of shame that was being projected in terms of Arab identity Muslim identity away um but the prior to that um it was always more of a a class thing. Are you are you being uh, interrupted? Is there someone trying to get your attention? Yeah. Uh, I was just going to ask you about code switching, which you talk about in the book. Um, most of us who most of us do it day to day, especially if you're raised between different cultures and worlds. What are the different codes that you say you would switch between? Um, I think do you see that as a problem. Um. Well, I think it's a problem when you feel like you have to do it all the time. Um, I think when it's your, like, the mode that you have to operate in at all times, um, except for when you're potentially at home, but then even at home, I don't know. I don't know, for different people, that they probably also have to do that at home. So, yeah, it's a problem when it becomes um, non-stop because then you're just living... Uh, like under a, a mask um, and then who knows when you're able to ever actually be yourself where do you find those spaces when do you even know what that means anymore um, and then if you have a total loss of identity um, obviously that's uh, pretty destructive on all fronts so I think it can can be a very very terrible thing if it's something that has to happen for specific purposes and only exists in, in that specific purpose, I think most people do it. For example, to your boss, you're going to be a particular way. To your parents at a certain age, you're going to be a particular way. Teachers, et cetera, et cetera, certain friends. So you're always going to show like different sides of yourself. And I don't think that that is um, like code switching in in the political sense of kind of having to do it for a feeling of survival or a feeling of um, a right to be there or a right to exist or or anything like that. So, I mean, generally, yeah, it is a problem. But I guess people, um, some people who get good at it feels like, you know, that they're... Um, they're in they're able to know how to do it and so therefore like they use it to their advantage and um maybe don't don't feel like it's that negative an aspect of their life but what about for yourself is it something you feel you have to do today is it something that you do less of these days how has how do you do you, are you able to bring your full self to work and the work that you do <laughs> um yeah I think now definitely sort of from about 2019 when I did my I did a play called a history of water in the Middle East um at the Royal Court yeah and that was like the first time that I realized that oh I, that is actually um available to me now like to just bring my whole self to my work and if I want to and if I don't want to it's fine but I, but I can and um and yeah, and I think that that's partly to do with age and it's partly to do with finding teams and places that kind of celebrate that and encourage that. Um, and 
once you've you know I guess like got a certain level of security in terms of career that you don't feel as much pressure to be what you think other people want you to be but you can just be yourself um a bit more um but yeah I mean you know still I, I still probably I don't know I don't think it's code switching as such and it's probably not masking but I certainly wouldn't be telling um various stories to people at my kids school gates or something like that but and what what about I was uh so kind of very intrigued to read about the fact that you'd applied to the MOD earlier on in your career and that got me uh thinking about code switching as well and also like the idea of a creative like yourself sort of applying to the MOD and what um you talk about in the book the kind of vetting questions uh, that you had to go through for that job what did you learn about how you were being perceived from the questions that were used to vet you for the MOD job um I well at the time I didn't really learn much but on reflection um I learned mostly what the book explores um which is about sort of how ingrained um the Middle East and Arab identity is in the sort of imperial outlook of Britain and how as a British person even a white passing British person who does have that Arab heritage um who is connected with that side of themselves um it's a problem it's not it's not something to be celebrated it's not something to be um encouraged or looked at as a just a part of somebody um it's looked at as something to dig deeper into to question to be suspicious of um and then class wise it kind of reiterated what by then I was already realizing but it it made it quite clear that you know unless you have assets assets that you know as a young person who knows how you're supposed to have but I guess there's a there's a big proportion of this country um that do have them and um that those people exist and that those people are the people who are regarded as trustworthy regarded as um intellectual regarded as brave and um the people who can make the decisions that need to be made because they don't have debts and because they have um a house and because they don't go into their overdraft uh, so yeah, th- those kind of realizations about how, as a society, there are people who are choosing what makes um, a supposedly trustworthy person trustworthy, um, and those people are coming from a really particular background and viewpoint. Um, and yeah, are there particular parts of Arab British history? Uh, that you feel are currently uh, either misrepresented or not given the prominence that they ought to in terms of how we tell the story of what it means to be British or what it means to or Britain's role in fact in the Middle East are there particular parts of that history that you feel should be taught differently or thought about differently? Um, Yeah I mean part of the reason for wanting to write the book was to open up the conversation about empire British empire in particular um to include the Middle East a little bit more because um I think that as generally because the British and the Americans are are still so involved there um 
it often doesn't feel as much of a sort of historical um, place to look at why they're still involved there, like how that's happened. Um, the imperial conversation just hasn't really centred on the Middle East. Um, I don't think it needs to centre on the Middle East, but I think that the Middle East needs to be included in that and to be um, discussed in terms of that, you know, hundreds of years of a ongoing um, invasion and um, uh, occupation that Britain has has had of that entire region. Um, so yeah, in, in those terms, definitely. Um, and then just, you know, in terms of like representation, there, there's just so many British people with Arab heritage that are either mixed or not mixed, but are British citizens um, or not British citizens and are still waiting for that citizenship. Um, and I do find that they're um, heavily unrepresented in all um, in all aspects of public life and in all TV, theatre, um, creative industries. Um, I mean, the statistics are actually pretty horrific. Um, the Creative Diversity Network in 2020 had some statistics on TV writers, on screen representation, I'm not sure, um, but the Oscars uh, have got good links to those statistics which they're american ones and and in those there's more aliens that appeared in um films in america than women from north african middle eastern heritage um and i think middle eastern north african and indigenous women are the least represented characters in the entirety of American screen life. Um, the British statistics that I was talking about, um, these ones that I took an interest in were about the writers, so off-screen representation. Um, and, you know, it's, it's terrible for everybody. I mean, it's 1.6% of TV writers um, were black and 5.6% were mixed. Um, but then East Asian and South Asian and other, uh, under which I would presume Middle Eastern, North African, Arab uh, identity would go, was so small that the that the number wasn't even there. It was just had an R for redacted. Um, oh. Yeah. So, you know, when when you just think about that and think about how huge a part Arab Middle Eastern stories have played in British history um, and continue to, you know, hold this sort of fascination, um, whether that's kind of a mystical fascination, cultural one or sort of political one in terms of wanting to show a story about war and conflict. Um, it's, it's quite horrendous that those the people from those backgrounds are, are not being part of those things that are being made, despite there being you know, plenty of talented people. Um, and there's an organisation called Mina Arts, which is just uh, started to gather a kind of network of um, creatives from those backgrounds that are working in the UK um, and set up a website over the pandemic to try to um, mitigate some of that and to try and encourage um, anyone who's doing a production, whether that's on stage, screen, um, to consult with them and to make sure that they were 
like hiring people from the backgrounds that they were representing um both on and off stage or screen um because i do think there has been a real push for on stage and on screen to be generally more representative and i think that the statistics probably show that that is happening gradually although not obviously to the extent that it needs to but it's it's the off off screen off stage statistics that often get kind of forgotten about and um to me are as important um as well so yeah sure. i'm sorry I don't, I don't know where i don't know where, what question that came from but no <laughs> That, that, that's, that leads me nicely onto the question I wanted to ask you about being a writer and being in the rooms where so much content is produced and we know there's a lot of uh, criticism, particularly like from Muslim communities, Arab communities, about how these groups are reflected on screen. How do you manage that when you're in the room and people are kind of thinking about storylines and, you know, like some of the sort of usual suspects that a lot of people get quite exhausted of seeing the same sort of honor killings or like you know women being forced to wear a hijab or like a lot of the same sort of quite tired narratives are recurring and are you frequently the only person in the room are you sort of raising issues around that how much consensus is there around it how much pushback is there today have things evolved a lot in the last few years um well, I do think people are more vocally open to everything. So they will ask questions. They will be wanting to know, you know, is this is this right? But but what does that mean? Is is this right? You know, like there's no sort of right answer. Like, is there a right way to set up the situation that this person is going to get married to this person I, I don't know like every situation is totally dif different and um I think that the pressure that's on creatives who are on the one hand great you are hiring people who are from who have a background or are from the place that you are writing about but at the same time the then the responsibility that's then pushed onto them mm -hmm. um in order to sort of verify validate and give a big tick to this particular portrayal um, is hugely problematic, um, especially if they are the only person, which I know has happened quite a lot when people sort of go, well, you know, we hired blah, blah, and she's from this place and she said it was fine. Yeah. Um, it, it's just, you know, that is happening a lot and it's really not good at all. Um, I have found it's, it's a frustrating experience because... I think particularly with Egypt, Egypt is one of those countries that everybody sort of feels a claim to. I guess like from kids, we kind of learn about ancient Egypt. It, it sort of has this draw for a lot of people. So many people have written about it. When I was researching for my book to try and find um, books written in English about the Middle East in general, but definitely Egypt that weren't written by a, a white European man was it's really hard. Wow. Um, I mean, there there are some, but no, most of them are written in Arabic, obviously. Um, but but the English ones, it was quite uh, eye opening to me to realise like how how much of the history has been written um, by by them uh, rather than being translated uh, from the Arabic works. Mm. Um, but yes, yeah, so so in that situation when it is about Egypt, uh, I do feel like it's quite hard. It, it's a bit of a struggle to get people to let go of what they've decided they'd like to do 
So I'm kind of there to sort of put forward my side of the argument, but not necessarily be listened to. But then I'll have the problem of, well, my name's going to be on this and people will know that I'm (laughs) the Egyptian person. And so then I'll get, you know, the potential um, responsibility for how these things are depicted. Um, But I don't really have any power in that situation because... um, you know, only the people at the top of these things actually have any power. And even then, you know, they're still answering to the networks and to whoever. So um, there's so many invisible people that actually, like, have all the power. Um, mm. That Often the people whose, like, names are in the credits who appear to be more visible are kind of projected onto as though they have a lot of power. But, but it is really actually quite minimal um, how mm. much power they have. There's, there's only a handful of people in the sort of English Western sort of creative industries that can genuinely just go like, this is what I'm doing and everyone has to be okay with it. I mean, it's, I've never, I've never seen that happen. So just before we go to the quick fire round, can I therefore ask you for all of the sort of young creatives who are listening in and thinking like, oh, I really want to, you know, go into writing. I want to get behind the scenes and try and change the narratives, change the stories that are being told about like people just like myself. What are some of the biggest or what is the biggest challenge you face in those rooms in trying to counter those narratives? And what advice might you give to anyone going into those spaces? Um I mean, I think you've got to just you've you've got to have a sense of like real determination and hope that it can change. But you've also got to be realistic in terms of like, well, like capitalist realism in that like capitalism has already set the narrative that we're living in. And and whilst we all kind of want to try and like push, move, shape that narrative um, in a way that better represents the people that we know, the places that we come from. Um, ultimately, like whilst that system's in place, we're just really re- remapping and rearranging that narrative. I mean, I don't think that white supremacy can be dismantled without capitalism being dismantled, which would mean a complete dismantling of all the industries that we're so eager to work in. So this is a sort of constant irony uh, in terms of in terms of that, really. But, you know, that is something that you just have to be prepared to grapple with, I guess, for for life. Um, and and I guess it's, it's just, you know, really about not compromising um, to a point where you don't want to do it anymore um, and being... Yeah, I don't know. I, I personally would say, like, it's definitely better to work a bar job, or a restaurant job, or whatever job, than work in an industry and be made to do stuff that you don't believe in or or enjoy in any way. Um, Thank you. Um, let's go to the quick fire round because I do know that you've got a shoot off shortly. Yeah. Um, it's quick fire round, so quick fire questions and quick fire answers, if you could. Uh, what is your uh, definition of whiteness? Oh, God. Well, we learned earlier. So I'm not going to have a quick one of that. Um, it, I, I see it as a totally political thing, political definition. What is the root of racism? Um, greed and power. What is the opposite of whiteness? Mm. non-whiteness is is there such a thing as a post-racial world in your view and is that 
universalist ideal ever achievable or even desirable? Um, I think it is achievable, it is desirable, but it is only possible with the dismantling of capitalism. Is whiteness a useful conceptual tool in conversations on anti-racism? Um, yep. Fantastic. Thank you so much for, <laughs> for your time. Thank um, you. Um, if people want to connect with you and your work, your ideas, is there anywhere that you'd like to direct them to, a website, your Instagram page, any particular place? Uh, yeah, I haven't really been uh, very on any of those things recently, but I guess I do update Instagram every now and again. Um, so probably there. Instagram. And if people want to purchase your book, do you have a book uh, seller of choice? Uh, bookshop.org. Bookshop.org. There we go. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you again for taking the time to talk to me, uh, sharing your thoughts. Uh, thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in to this episode of We Need to Talk About Whiteness. Please do subscribe on iTunes, Spotify and SoundCloud and join us next time for more conversations on whiteness. Thank you so much. Thank you.